Welcome to LeaderSight, where we believe leadership is a people game. I'm Eric Thompson. Leadership is a game that can be played by anyone, anywhere, because it's an action by any party that helps your group meet its adaptive challenges. We bring you successful leaders who have something special, leadership wisdom, and put them in a position to share that with you unfiltered, to offer you their insight, foresight, and maybe even some 2020 leadership hindsight to help you on your leadership journey. If you get some value from this podcast and would like to say thanks, please subscribe to it. Like it on your favorite podcast app and consider sharing it with a friend who could use it. And if you'd like to connect, head over to thompsonleadership.com, where we are all about helping grow great leaders, great teams, often helping them navigate the high stakes people challenges that are always part of the ride to victory. So I'm very delighted to be uh, having as my guest today, Mary Powell. She's a very interesting person, and I cannot wait for this chat. Mary is a true power player. As the uh, former CEO of an amazing company, Green Mountain Power, She was one of the most visible female top executives in Vermont, and she still is. In 2015, she was awarded the Vermonter of the Year. And uh, she joined this uh, Green Mountain Power Company in 1998, served for seven years as COO, and then took over as president and CEO in 2018. And uh, interesting times for the company. She was promoted right after the acquisition by uh, a Quebec-based conglomerate, Gaz Metro, and um, then chairman of the board of directors said, Mary has been a key driver in the restructuring of Green Mountain Power from a traditional electric utility to a high-performing company that is now noted for using technology to drive customer satisfaction and to produce produce consistently strong financial results. And in 2014, under her leadership, they became the first utility in the world to be certified as a B Corp, defined as for-profit companies certified by the nonprofit B Lab to meet rigorous standards of social and environmental performance, accountability, and transparency. And a picture's worth a thousand words, so I'm gonna share some visuals of the world of Green Mountain Power and um, Mary's uh, life within it. So one of the interesting things we're gonna get into is a female executive in a traditional male industry power and you power utilities and her journey of success with that is amazing. I love this picture of the poles. They carry our electricity to us. And Green Mountain Power is green, not because not just because it's the Green Mountain State, but really a national leader in the transformation of energy. And we can get into a little bit of that too. Um, really out front with taking on the puzzle of climate change. And uh, these these pictures give you a little sense of that. Welcome, Mary Powell. Thank you. It's awesome to be here today. And I'm so excited because I'm already looking at all the little Hollywood squares and seeing all these people (laughs) I love. So (laughs) it's really fun. Great to be with you, Eric. A lot of old friends on the call. Yeah. And some new friends. Thanks, Mary, for taking the time. And I just can't wait for this chat. Good. Me too. So I shared some of your bio, but I want to share a little more on and maybe start there. Um, so Mary grew up in an interesting family, artistic family. Um, you have had, you know, you're fascinating to me in many ways. One is just how open you've been about your biography and your journey, including sharing with the whole world, your breast cancer journey and all the stuff you learned from that and some of the challenges in your family growing up, but also, you know, interesting family, Manhattan family, 
father, a uh, very successful, noted actor, award-winning actor in, in, in New York City. So artistic family. And um, you went to an artistic high school, right? Yep. What were, yeah. you into, what were you into back then, Mary, for art? Why did you well, want to go? I, yeah, I mean, honestly, the reason yeah. that I tested to get into it, yeah, it was, it's the school that the you know, movie Fame was, was written about, the high school. It's Fiorella LaGuardia High School of Music and Art and Performing Arts. And yeah. I mean, but honestly, Eric, the reason I yeah. tested to get in was because I would much rather do like three hours of art a day than science and math. So I mean, <laughs> and it was also a way... In New York City at the time, you know, in the 1960s, 1970s, as a lot of people know, New York was in a lot of financial trouble. The public school system was my parents were kind of nervous about um, some of the choices because, you know, where we lived and where we would have ended up and just going to the traditional public school would have been a challenge um, from a safety perspective. So they were really encouraging of us to test our way into any of sort of the specialty high schools. And, you know, so I, I liked art. Um, I never, ever had an illusion that I could support myself as an artist, but I certainly, I certainly liked it. That's amazing that your parents did. Yeah. That's right. You know, I always think that takes tremendous guts or maybe talent and good luck to even try to support yourself as an artist. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and that was one of the many powerful lessons I learned growing up in the house I grew up in. My dad did have success later in life, but we had a lot of, we grew up with just, you know, absolute financial insecurity. In fact, I, I remember I went to, uh, my mother took me to a doctor when I was six because I, I would wake up with this searing pain in my head and, um, you know, and they were worried, of course. And so I'll never forget the doctor asked my mother to leave the room. And he said, Mary, can I ask, I can't find anything wrong with you. Can I ask you, is there anything bothering you? You know, and I'll never forget because it was like this. I didn't even realize it, but I just basically talked about this incredible financial insecurity that that we had around us, and was worried about my parents. And he made me feel better, and I never had that pain again. But you know, so I really learned though about doing. You know, really the the short version I would say is I I just it was just a great power of example of doing what you're passionate about and not. You know, and again, it wasn't like they didn't worry about the basics. You know, we were fed and, and clothed, um, but, it, you know, it was really a lot about, yeah, about doing what you're passionate about. And, and also just a great, my dad was also a great example. He was a World War II vet and he did a lot of service at uh, the VA hospital. Um, and so we had a lot of folks coming over to the apartment from time to time. So I sort of got this combination of, do what you're passionate about and a strong sense of service from growing up in that home, along with a lot of other things. <laughs> and uh, you share with me that you, you had a thing for animals from yeah. way back. Yeah. So you want yeah. to share a little bit about that? What sure. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's a bit of an obsession. I mean, and one of my favorite, my favorite book growing up was the little engine that could, and I, and I've used that story a lot to propel me when I needed to be propelled. But the other favorite show I had was Green Acres. So um, and some of you may remember Green Acres with I think it was either Zsa Zsa Gabor or Ava Gabor. But anyway, it was the New Yorkers who ended up, you know, in this farm surrounded by animals. And that's, you know, really literally my dream come true about where I live now is we have about 20 some odd animals. But the way it manifested itself when I was little is. I would, you know, I spent a lot of time, we had a dog and I spent a lot of time in Riverside Park and Central Park and basically just, you know, rescued animals. Uh, that's what I did. You know, whether it was a bag of kittens that we found on the side of the road, a friend and I, or whether it was the dog we named Taco, the German Shepherd that had been hit by a car and we raised money and got him surgery. And so, yeah, I've, I've uh, a love of animals, an obsession with animals, it runs deep. <laughs> This is you running around door to door at what age, raising money for tacos? Yes, I was pretty, I think I was like, I think it was probably third grade, third grade. Yes, I was going door to door with the taco fund so that we could help pay for taco surgery. And um, yeah, and then high school, we were, my high school was up in Harlem. It was right on Morningside Park. And so that also was a place you could find a lot of dogs. And I organized a whole bunch of people to get a plywood board. And we got this dog off the street and took it to a hospital. and. So, 
saving animals. You know, it's a sign of a big heart. I mean, animals are all heart. They are. How about how would you relate to the to the word confidence, Mary? Just you know, back then or now, even or through your journey. Um, I think for many people, it's a nuanced thing, but that's, you know, there's a confidence there going door to door to raise money at that age. Well, you know, it's funny, Eric, because I would actually say, in fact, I've always said one of the things that I think really propelled me early in my career was actually incredibly low self-esteem and actually a lot of a lack of confidence and really a strong sort of people pleasing trait in me, um, you know, in a way that, you know, cause again, our house is, you know, I've, I've shared very openly, but, you know, we also had a lot of challenges. It was my dad ended up becoming a recovering alcoholic, but there was a lot of, a lot of stuff that happened that was very challenging at a young age. So I didn't, you know, so I wouldn't, yeah, I didn't think of myself as confident when I think about like going door to door actually. And I feel like this really connects with any kind of great thing I've been able to accomplish later in life, it really was where that came from was my desire to save taco. Like, do you know what I mean? It wasn't that I had confidence at all in myself or my ability to raise money, you know, but it was really the higher purpose of saving the dog that gave me the strength that I needed to knock on doors. And I think in some weird way too, you know, it's, it's funny. I feel like a lot of my, um, what people might look at as confidence really came almost from a not caring about myself, if that makes any sense. Sort of like, you know, I was able to do things that other people didn't want to do because I'd be like, oh, well, whatever, I'll do it, you know, kind of feeling in life, not so much of a, you know, wow, I'm powerful. I feel strong. I can do this kind of feeling. So I just want to highlight this this you know you're you're one of the most recognizable business figures in the state of vermont and you have a national reputation and i just think it's amazing to hear you say that you don't necessarily view yourself as a confident person and you know what it fits mary with a lot of uh discoveries i've made on my journey of talking to senior leaders that confidence is not necessarily like if you don't have it don't think you can't get in the game yep. because you just said it very well. It, it's a driver. I think maybe high conscientious people, highly conscientious people and people with a lot of empathy are often prone to confidence doubts mm. and it does not correlate with a lack of success. Right. Yep. Do you think that's true generally or are you unique that way? Would you say? No, I, think, I, I, I don't think honestly, I don't think there's anything you know, strikingly unique about any, I mean, I think we, I, I'm always focused more on what we share from a human perspective than yeah. uh, where our differences are. Um, but no, I, I actually don't think it's unusual at all. I actually think some of the most highly successful people, uh, you know, that a lot of it comes from underlying neurosis, actually. <laughs> so, I've always said like, I hundred percent agree. And, and, uh, you know, to whatever degree I have some success, it's, it's unquestionably, uh, related to that because I've always had a feeling of something to prove. Right. Do right. you relate to that? Something yeah. to driving you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, and that little engine that could, I mean, I think that's why that was like my favorite little book when I was a kid. Cause I didn't, I didn't have, honestly, I didn't have messages about you're strong. You're, you know, it was really quite the opposite. Actually, I was the youngest in kind of a dysfunctional, you know, very loving, but very dysfunctional um, situation. And, you know, kind of like, you know, my role or my thing was trying to like make everything better, you know? And so that's a lot of, you know, a lot of where my drive and my energy comes from is still that same, that same place, you know, um, better. Yeah. Yeah. No. And you learn. I mean, I, I, I feel like, I mean, I hope I've learned to be a way healthier version of myself. You know, I, I definitely have love for myself now. Well, let's, uh, let's get so. into that a little. So I want to say, you know, flash to the title that you came up with that leaders, humanity and effectiveness supercharger. Yeah. It's a powerful statement. And here you are. You're, I knew you, I knew we'd go right into this humanity and it's, you know, I love what you're saying. And, um, I was wondering about this, the nuance of it. Like, you know, you're a person who uses the word love freely 
in describing how you do business. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I showed that little uh, picture of this podcast. Mary was on this podcast. I highly recommend this if you want to check, learn more about Mary and how she thinks. And also uh, climate change. This podcast is called My Climate Journey. One month ago, Mary was interviewed. And you were talking in there about a sort of circle of love with, you know, people who might be branded as NIMBY on the, you know, energy transformation space, transformation to solar, wind, and regulators and the, you know, utility providers. And you, you use that kind of word of like, how do you get the victory of bringing people together? And you, you freely use that word, right? Yep. I do. Now, say a little bit about this. Okay. Well, I mean, first of all, I do do now back to your confidence thing. I mean, honestly, it did, you know, it was always rattling around in there, you know, because I I feel, you know, again, I came from a very non-traditional background, you know, and I'm, I still am, you know, I'm, I'm an outlier in everything I do. I mean, I just was at this dinner in New York yesterday, you know, celebrating this successful, I was part of a climate SPAC. You know, and we took EVgo public as a part of of our work together. And you know, I'm st- honestly, I'm still sitting. There, I'm like, wow. I'm like, with you know, I'm an outlier. I am an outlier. Am it's just that? like, I mean, they're all like Princeton, Harvard. You know, I am an outlier. Um, I went to Keene State College in New Hampshire. You know, I got an associate's degree. I, you know, so there's nothing about me that has felt. Uh, mainstream. And in many ways, that's that, Eric, that's why I didn't always use the word love. I always believed in it. But I was actually many years ago, I would say I would be nervous to use that because I think I would be typecast, you know. Um, And so it was it was it felt very freeing. Well, I think it was like six or seven years ago when I finally it was some interview and I just was like, it was about where does your innovation come from? And I was like, like, I, I, I honestly, it was like love. It had to come out. Like it finally just came out that that's for me, you know, what I think, I do think it's the, you know, I think it's the ultimate, actually. I think there's a lot of things that can motivate you. There's a lot of things that can create better results and success and higher connectivity to people and, and, you know, again, you know, achieve great things, but personally, when I'm digging down into that well of love, that is, like where I have absolutely seen the coincidence of the highest degree of success. Like that is, that is without a shadow of a doubt. And again, maybe it goes back to like, when you asked me about, was it confidence that I could go door to door and raise money to, you know, heal taco the dog, right? It's sort of the same, you know, it was really that in that case, it was like love of this dog I found on the street. And I, you know, and so for me, in a lot of the things, you know, and there's so much acrimony now and there's so, you know, it's love is needed now more than ever. Um, but that's, you know, it was, it was very freeing when I felt like I could finally say that word um, and talk about it. But, you know, but it is, you know, there's just no doubt about it. I know, you know, just from my experience, I've done some things out of fear. I've done some things out of, um, you know, other other reasons right and the 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 biggest results i've ever been part of accomplishing it's all when i can dig into that well of love can you give us one story that illustrates this digging into this well of love i'm fascinated by this and how it wins in high stakes business situations what illustrates oh i i can tell you like honestly (laughs) It's hard to think of many things in the last like stretch of time um, that I, that we were able to do at Green Mountain Power, whether it was pulling off the acquisition of CBPS, whether it was trying. I mean, one of the, my biggest frustrations in my last couple of years was the sort of the division happening between those in the energy space that that at a high level were all saying they wanted the same thing. So the trade groups, whether it was you know, renewable energy, Vermont, the utilities, the, you know, um, the independent power producers, you know, it was, it was, there would be conflict in my mind when there, it was really not useful. Um, And so that was the most recent time I practiced it, but I used to practice it all the time. I mean, I can't tell you how many meetings I would go down, sit down at with somebody that I knew was, had a very different position or wasn't happy or didn't want to collaborate. 
And the first thing I would do, I sit down, I just look them straight in the eyes, like I'm looking at you and just say to my head over and over again, I love you. I love you. I love you. <laughs> literally, like literally. That's and, beautiful. you know, yeah. and what would happen is I would, you know, cause again, if I'm angry, if I'm frustrated, if I'm, I mean, even in, you know, some of the tough things that you were so helpful with me on, you know, in, even with my, with team members, right. There's things yeah. happen and things can be really challenging. And, you know, what I would always try to do is in those interactions, the first thing I would do when I would sit down is I would just look in the eyes of the person and say to myself, you know, say to, as if I'm saying to them, I love you. Um, you know, so that would be a really, so, I mean, I did that with, I mean, you know, I'm friends with him now. I can say his name, David O'Brien, you know, he was our, he was our chief regulator. Um, and, he, you know, there was some challenges when we were first launching this very ambitious kind of green energy vision. And, you know, I, yeah, it's, I was using love, way, left, right, and center. Folks, <laughs> if you want to hear more about some of the ways that there's a customer driven revolution happening in power, that is addressing the concerns of climate change. Back to that uh, My Climate Journey podcast, Mary goes a lot into that, the amazing uh, vision she has for distributed energy. But um, yeah, so, you know, power, you're in a, you're in a, you're in a uh, utility, everyone's got their hands in it, right? And so um, a good friend of ours, Nord Brew, who was on your board for many years, uh, he said this about you, that Mary was able to do unexpected but very effective things. When she showed up in the field where linemen were climbing utility poles, she wore very stylish high heels but remained very much the CEO. It was powerful. He thought that was powerful. And then um, he spoke to this um, collaboration thing that he perceived you as having kind of a lack of fear, which is interesting to hear you say, like, not always, you know but that uh, it reduced the common defensive posture during negotiations and seemed to permit her to develop an accurate read of the context of her challenges. Mm. So what do you think about that? Any comments on that? No? Well, I love Nord. <laughs> so, so it's nice to, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I think it goes back to honestly this, you know, I mean, again, my greatest work was also just tied to, you know, and I think this is true of others I've worked with, tied to caring more about the success of the organization, the people of the organization, more the success of the people you serve than yourself. I mean, I think that is so core. So it's, and it's, so that's like bigger than just love, right? It's also, really this notion of being of service and really feeling like, you know, and I guess some of that also just, you know, it also, I think one of the cool things about being an outlier is it lets you be an outlier. Like I, you know what I mean? Like it was early on, I used to try to think about how to fit in because who doesn't. Right. And it just felt so ridiculous because it just like, they're just, like, I, you know, why I even mean, try. right. Like. Exactly. <laughs> why even try? And, that, you know, um, so again, I feel like that, that, and that notion also, I should also say the thing about growing up in the family I did is another like deep seated value was that, you know, business wasn't high on the list of like, what's important. <laughs> so, so also the fact that I was working in business and trying to do like, that I was lucky enough to work in business that I felt like had a really important purpose in life and for humanity, you know, really made it easier to tell you the truth to just keep putting the success of the organization on the on behalf of the people we were serving and serving with way ahead of myself so where i was appearing fearless i remember very much the feeling like i remember very much the feeling of well okay like i this is what i'm supposed to do this is the next right action and if something like if I end up losing my job or something happens because I was trying to do what I thought was in the best interest of the company and the people we serve, then that's a, that's an honorable thing. Like that's, yeah. you know, that kind of felt like that's an honorable thing versus if you, if I, you know, if I ever let, you know, which again, I do, right. Cause I'm human. So sort of when that ego comes in or pride comes in, um, you know, that's what I have to root out, 
you know, at times, particularly at times like now, where there's just so much ambitious work that needs to be done. There's just no time to let it become driven by ego. It sounds like you've really embraced yourself, warts and all. I love the fact that you just put it out there that you have an AA degree. I have to tell you, because Mary, I've had a bunch of relationships with people who are kind of amazingly effective and they confessed to me in the conversation guess what Eric I didn't go to college like some IT people in Silicon Valley and they're mm-hmm. they're kind of like living in this fear that people will know that right so you doing this is helping them which is what I want to do because a lot of times I'm in a situation where I've got like five people telling me this person here has tremendous potential yeah. and I'm trying to help them unleash that I want to ask you something else, Mary. So you touched on it. Balancing love with the ability to have hard conversations or set boundaries or, you know, I think of it as like the moral burden of leadership where you can, sometimes you're called upon to make life hard for people and challenge them in, in very substantive ways, you know, and what have you learned about that? Well, I mean, I think that that's, you know, what I've said a lot of times when I talk about leading with love is like, and let's not forget, tough love is one of the highest forms or most important forms of love. So, so, you know, in some of the, in some of the situations, you know, um, that I think that applies in some of the situations where there's just, you know, like there's just brutal facts, like just business brutal facts that need to be dealt with um, that are going to be challenging for people. You know, I, I just love that old adage. It's not what you do. It's how you do it. You know, and I, you know, I think that, uh, again, you know, by bringing humanity into it, by truly caring about people. And that's, you know, I remember when I went to Green Mountain, they were so surprised because really the first thing I wanted to do was just like I, I said to the then CEO, Chris, I said, you're, you're not going to see me for a few weeks. And he's like, why? I'm like, well, it's because I want to meet the real people that do actually all of the work <laughs> and get to know them. Um, and, you know, and then, and then we had hard decisions that affected some of those people that I got to know, you know, in those first few weeks. And, but, but having that human connection and then having, and I actually think that's where a lot of times, you know, Leadership requires a courage that I have seen when I was doing consulting. I saw a lot of leaders that just weren't comfortable with what I thought was the highest payback part of the job, which was connection with people. And and particularly when things are tough, because that's when it's, you know, I, I feel like it gets easy to like hide in their office and have, you know, other people carry messages and it's, it's really like the highest value time to be as personal as you can be. Um, you know, and you're, and, and I, you know, even, yeah, I, I just really, I try, I mean, I remember dealing with one situation at, at Green Mountain, this person, you know, it was actually a power production worker that, you know, for year other people for years were complaining about this guy and like nobody had had the courage to actually have an honest conversation. So it was a little odd because I was pretty high up in the organization to be the one to have this honest conversation with him. But I did. And, you know, and we ended up having a really great bond as a, as a result of that, you know, so I think that it's uh, yeah, it's, it's so, so key that, you know, connection and it's different depending on the size of your organization. You know, one of the things I loved was, that size, you know, I really basically feel like I pretty much knew 500 and some odd people, but I've worked in very large organizations too. And still bringing that heart and that connection, you know, I think that love, even if it's tough love or tough times, I think that's all the more reason we need to bring more of it, not less, not hide from it or run away. It doesn't mean that you're making people happy all the time by bringing, you know, love and humanity to what you're doing. It just means you're bringing honesty and you're willing to have the tough conversations. I love the, the combination of going in with that spirit of, I want the very best for you. And even I just you know, practice of quietly saying to yourself, I love you. Yep. And then at the same time, I'm gonna bring the brutal facts to you. Mm-hmm. While I'm talking to you, I'm going to look at you and maybe even have that spirit on my face in my nonverbals 
which is what most people are paying most attention to anyways, mm. while I say things that no one else wants to say to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So another thing that Nord mentioned, and I shared this that you like this, touch this point about Nord, Nord said, um, you know, Mary was an outsider, as you've said. <laughs> I love the way you brought that out so clearly. You know, like at this meal you were at last night, she was not male, not an engineer, not a lawyer, not a finance pro. Came out of HR. How many CEOs come out of HR? It's not that common. She accepted and exploited being an outsider. Isn't it? I think he got you. I mean, that's really what you're saying, you know. <laughs> And learn to talk the talk and work and walk the walk. And then he asked this question, is it more difficult for non-traditional candidates to get the job than to do it well? So you like that question. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that it, it is. I mean, and I, you know, and one of the things that I was so happy that we were able to do at Green Mountain was really pretty much wherever possible. I mean, we, we had a lot of union jobs and those, you know, you negotiate how you advertise and how you structure them. But for, for any job that we could, you know, we basically just really tried to put what attributes, what personal attributes we were looking for versus, you know, this structure. I mean, and in fact, I think right now that conversation is more important than ever, um, you know, because as, as, jobs, you know, a lot of employers are looking for people, you know, it still blows my mind, honestly, when I look at advertisements, you know, how ridiculously finite they are about what they, like this many years of experience, this kind of degree, this, you know, and, and really at the end of the day, you know, again, what, what I think is most important is, you know, really what, what are you made of, you know, really, is it, you know, is there, you know, what in your life has happened that has given you a lot of jobs, you know, a lot of things we were looking for were things like, you know, really grit and perseverance and, you know, passion and, um, and love of people. And, you know, yeah, so those sorts of things, I think at the end of the day are really important. I mean, the other thing about non-traditional though, is, you know, it also, I was lucky, like I got to work with you know, I came into this setting, as Nord described, really an outlier, um, you know, and I got to work with a couple of people in particular, uh, Nord being one of them on the board, but, you know, in the company, Chris Dutton and Steve Terry, that were incredible, incredibly supportive. I mean, you see so many organizations where, um, you know, the organ is rejected, as I've heard it called, right? You know, like the, the more that somebody's an outlier, the hardest, the harder the transplant into the organization and the culture can be. And so really, you know, also being very aware of that and being, you know, and making sure that you have leadership that truly is welcoming, having a very different perspective. And so that's key. And I, you know, I, I do that myself. I love hiring outliers. I mean, I love it. I, and, you know, and it's funny you say that because maybe it's the place I started in New York. And I actually did run a lot of operations of a three and a half billion dollar fund when I was in my 20s. And um, so it was HR plus a lot of operational stuff. And, you know, one of the things these two guys I thought were just they had they nailed it. Bruce Benton, Harry Brown, who are the founders of the whole money market concept was they 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 loved high school graduates, actually. They said, because they didn't come with any of the attitude, what they used to say, they didn't come with the attitude or the expectations. They really wanted to just, uh, you know, work hard and, and prove themselves to a certain degree. So, yeah, I mean, and not to be dismissive of the importance of higher education. It's it, particularly in today's market. It's very, very important. But Good um, yeah, most of the time, but yeah, most so of the time sure that you can do it without it. Right. Um, you know, Mary, one of the things I think you're touching on here is something I think a lot about is how do you assess leadership talent? And you're talking about hiring for that. And oftentimes you do have to sort of fuzzy the lens of technical skills in order to sharpen the lens of assessing leadership talent. And it's wonderful to hear about this uh, mentoring that you got. And I, I want to note something about Green Mountain Power, which is, so they hired you from within, you know, as the CEO. 
And then you developed a successor, Mary McClure, who, if anybody's interested in another amazing interview that um, where a person, again, puts out and, and dismisses the myth that you have to be perfectly confident to be a Division I basketball star and a CEO, Mary McClure's uh, interview, which is on my YouTube channel, this Leadersite YouTube channel, uh, does the same kind of thing. And I just think that it's, it's a tremendous uh, accomplishment for an organization to develop CEOs from within. And not all of them pull it off. It's much less risky um, because you know what you're getting. And um, I don't know, any thoughts about how you do that well? Well, I mean, I, I'm just, again, I think it was, I think we were, I think I was lucky in that I had really good, talented people around me. And I mean, on the board, you know, the whole ecosystem, yeah. the whole cultural ecosystem. And so, you know, really, it, it was, it, it was really an amazing, it feels really wonderful, actually, that, you know, from the folks that I got to work with over the year, years, we grew really three CEOs, because Don Rendell, who worked for me, became a CEO of a company, Rebecca Town, uh, became the CEO. She's the CEO now at, at Vermont Electric Cooperative. And then Mary McClure took the role at Green Mountain Power. So that is something CEO I feel, I feel really good Power. about. CEO factory. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty impressive. Kind of, you know, it, 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 I, and it, it was a, yeah, it was a, it really, it's something that I feel really good about. Um, you know, and, and back to like the important qualities, you know, it's so funny because I feel like over the years, back to this topic of love, I mean, I do feel like when I look at like the ones that didn't work so well, you know, and, and that's what's so hard is, you know, you think, oh my gosh, this one, this, wow, amazing, next CEO in line, blah, 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 you know, and then you're like, eh, not so fast, you know, I, and I feel like when I really look at the qualities of, you know, what what increases the odds of, of that sort of evolution happening? It really is, again, the love of people, you know, and finding that, you know, I think it's hard. I really realized at one point many years ago, wow, there's a lot of people leading people that actually don't really like people. And then <laughs> I remember talking to this one, one guy that was on my team and I said this and he, and he sort of sat back and he goes, you know what? I don't really like people. <laughs> <laughs> and we had a great, like, honest conversation about that because that's where that's really where his struggle was, you know, where it was it was people were feeling like the enemy versus, you know, uh, you know, the source of of, uh, you know, all things powerful and good. You know, so that's yeah, I, I think that's a really, you know, it's, and again, you know, I can sit here and talk about it. But the reality is like anything you aspire to be you have to work at it to be it, you know? I mean, it's not like I'm a, you know, like wake up every day and, oh, like, who can I love today? You know, I mean, sometimes sometimes you wake up and that's not the first thing on your mind. So it's, it is, you know, really, it is so much about taking the, the actions and having a practice around you that supports the leader you want to be. We'll get back to our amazing guest after this 15 second break. If you're interested in developing the kinds of leadership capacities that you're hearing about today, including mastery of the art of leading people, building great teams, and overcoming high-stakes relationship challenges, you can learn more about our work by following us on LinkedIn. Or visit our website, thompsonleadership.com, where you can learn about our innovative Leading by Managing Self course which is our uniquely impactful road-tested year-long journey for senior executives and their teams. It's fantastic. Now, I really appreciate your boldness in just exploring this CEO love because, you know, I, I think a lot about how do you develop great players, great teams, great players. And I, I don't know if I emphasize this enough, but I think it's really true that liking your players you know, even like transcending, okay, there's stuff that you're doing that, that I'm not loving, but I love you, mm. you know, and, and there, there's an art to that. There's a, that's a quality that definitely impacts people's capacity to trust you and say, 
okay, I will, I will actually change mm-hmm. to serve this larger need. And I will, I will take leaps. I will try things that I didn't know that I right. maybe I'm not comfortable trying. Yeah. Yep. Along with, I mean, I think a key thing too that I've seen though, is it's so important. I think at the leadership level that at least again, nobody's perfect. Nobody does anything a hundred percent, but at least the vast majority of the time, the leaders are focused on the organization and the team and they put the organization and the success of the team way higher than themselves. That, that to me you know, and that, that you can get there, you know, through talking about love or not. Right. But that also that sort of that sense of service to a greater purpose than yourself, I think is so key. And where I've seen leaders get tripped up over the years, it's, it, you know, again, comes back to what we were talking about before ego pride. It's more about them. It's more about what the payout's going to be. It's more versus that having sort of a higher purpose. To what you're doing every day. Yeah, you've emphasized that a lot throughout this conversation, the selfless love and the power of that. You know, back to taco and your 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 how that strengthened you, your your desire to serve this injured dog who you found in the park. Uh, Nord said she was able to change the relationship with regulators from confrontation to collaboration. That's very interesting to me because we all know you know, company and regulators can get into some pretty negative cycles of mistrust, et cetera. And uh, maybe it's a good time to bring in Nord. Entrepreneur, uh, founder of a, of a the company Brugger's that made, brought great bagels to America, the first company that took them out of New York City and spread them all over and other companies that he's been involved in and long time board member of uh, Green Mountain Power. Nord, uh, what are you thinking about what Mary's sharing? Uh, give us well, some of your reflections. Eric, let me start off with a recognition and to say thank you for Taco the Dog. Because one of the great joys of my years in business was working with Mary Powell. And I had no idea that I owed it all to a dog. Maybe not all a significant part of it. The other thing I've discovered, I would have uh, so greatly enjoyed hearing Mary Powell say, I love you, until I found out she's also <laughs> saying that to our regulators and to our enemies. Every- <laughs> You've depreciated the currency, Mary. <laughs> Let's, I wanna, you have really covered well, you and Eric have covered well. The outsider. Well, about the joy of working with Mary from your perspective as a board member. Well, I'll come to that in a minute. All right. All I'll right. Come to that in a minute. But I want to hear Mary's take. Well, I, I guess I'll start with a with one with this thought. Mary may have had an untraditional background, but she did by the time she was in the executive suite and then the CEO suite she did master some of the gurus of the field. One of Mary's favorite sayings, and we'll let her comment on that if she likes, is culture eats strategy for breakfast. In that she's quoting the Dean, the, 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 the greatest uh, management theorist of the 20th century, Peter Drucker. And Mary, you found resonance in that somehow. Oh my gosh, yes, absolutely. I mean, in that, Nord, you're absolutely right. I mean, and that's, that, you know, I talk about that all the time, you know, culture eats strategy. I added for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but (laughs) because I think, you know, one of the things I found in really, I think it was driven home in the consulting work that I did because, you know, you see people spend all this time on these lofty, wonderful, brilliant strategic plans and documents. And, you know, and really it's also where I came up with the line, good ideas are a dime a dozen execution is what's rare because it's really around what is the organization made of that is so much more important than, you know, what the, and actually some of our greatest work as you know, Nord was because of the culture we built, right? So we built this culture of innovation, this culture that had this North star around green energy. That's incredibly cost-effective and reliable for Vermonters. And that's how we came up with like the 
partnership that I think put us on the map with Tesla, right? It wasn't because we had this amazing strategic plan that said, oh, geez, we need to find, we didn't even know about Tesla at the time doing their power walls. So it's really about, yes, creating a culture that's in the case of Green Mountain that was obsessed with customers, obsessed with service and obsessed with this green, clean, affordable future for Vermonters. And having that as the, you know, and then looking at every single way we were reinforcing or not those cultural attributes. So, yeah, that is, I think, at the end of the day, the most important thing. What I'm trying to get to here, Mary, to be transparent, is to see if you can summarize for people who are listening or may listen to this in the future, how as a non-traditional, you know, not checking any of the boxes. What are the, if you had summarized that to the keys to the kingdom, but I want to say one other thing, because this is my point of view. Uh, you learned when you got to that level to rely on people who were thinkers about it. I mean, you, you came to it innocently, but you didn't stay innocent. So we studied Jim Collins and we learned that uh, great companies create their own leaders and mm -hmm. Collins called it level five leadership not putting yourself first, put your organization first. And I think you embodied that. That's what, that's what you've been sharing and talking about. So if you were trying to, to pass on a message to a, a young non-traditional candidate, how would you boil it down? When do you have to get serious about these, these uh, traditional things as well as bringing your own outside perspective? Well, I mean, I think the most important thing at the end of the day is you know, you're right, Nord, a lot of that came from a lot of those shared readings and experiences we did, you know, but at the end of the day, in terms of like being a non-traditional person and coming into an organization, you know, I feel like the most important thing is to enter the organization. And, I, you know, and I have to practice what I'm talking about, right? Because I'm, I've done a lot of work with a lot of different organizations, and I'm interested in a lot of different projects. And, you know, I think it's so important to come into the organization with as much, you know, I love the line, I'm so humble, wasn't I? So I'm always nervous when I talk about humility, because I feel like the minute you, the, the minute you name it, you probably don't have it. But, but I feel like, in essence, the most important thing, whether you're an outsider or not, to tell you the truth, is go in with a degree of let me absorb, let me learn, let me understand, you know, the language, the people, the values They, you know, because again, Green Mountain was one way, it's radically different now, as you know, than when I joined, right. Um, and every organization I've ever walked through the doors of is just a little bit different. I mean, just a little bit different. So I feel like one of the most important things is this notion of humility and is this notion of open heart, open mind, and learning, you know, and then, and then because culture eats strategy isn't like, right, it's not like, oh, there's this one culture that should fit everywhere, right? It's, it is about really learning and pulling out, drawing out the best of the best of the people that are within the organization. Um, and that's what I felt like was so exciting when I first went to Green Mountain was it was you know, I, the, the, the raw material of this guy named Chris Dutton, right, as you know, was just amazing, right? So it was, it was working together and like drawing that out and magnifying it. Um, so I feel like that's, that's a really important, the, you know, and again, I don't know if that's more important as an outlier. Maybe it is because maybe, you know, the, maybe it is. But I, I think that's a recipe for success with anybody entering into you know a new arena um to them humility yeah i think you've done a, a you know a great job of mapping out some of these intangible qualities of character that end up mean meaning a whole lot the higher you go in the more more authority you get in an organization and you know some companies are really really good at bringing the best out of people and also recognizing character, you know, promoting character, hiring character, seeing it 
And I think it's something people can learn to get better at, but there are companies that aren't great at this. Mm -hmm. um, I wanna pause for a minute to do some promo here. I'm gonna start by promoting Mary's company that she has with her husband, Spots Dog. <laughs> Check it out on the internet. They have all kinds of cool products like that little um, collar that this gentleman uh, is wearing here. And uh, so Mary, you know, she's a year and a half out of the CEO game. Wouldn't be shocked if she's back in somewhere really interesting and really influential soon. But, um, you know, during all kinds of things like what you just mentioned in the meantime, but one of them is this Spot the Dog company that she's involved in. Here's a high school, Fiorello LaGuardia High School for the Performing Arts. Another outlier place. She didn't go to Harvard Business School. And um, I just want to show you a picture of uh, her successor here, Mary McClure, and this um, tease up that you can find a whole bunch of interviews like this on the Leader Site YouTube channel, including this one that I highly recommend listening to Mary McClure talk for 40 minutes about her game. And um, just want to tell you all, shameless self-promotion here, that I have a course called Leading by Managing Self that I love teaching and I think is really getting great results. It's a year-long journey that teams like this go through. It's fun. It's transformative. It's out there and available. So we got a few more minutes. Eric, I'd, I would... I want to follow up with one thing, and, and that's what I would call, we had a president once who's, who said it's the vision thing. And we haven't talked about that. We've talked about the internal yes. stuff in Mary's life. Yes. But the vision thing. So as a preface, I would say that I spent over 40 years in an involvement with Green Mountain Power, starting as an inside lawyer when I first moved to Vermont, becoming an outhouse lawyer when I started a private practice, when I became an entrepreneur, I joined the board. So I spent over 40 years total. And throughout that period of time, it was always assumed that one day our big brothers down in Rutland, Central Vermont Public Service, would acquire Green Mountain Power. Didn't happen that way. It happened the other way, all because of Mary Powell. Then Mary Powell become, is CEO, and uh, Green Mountain is acquired by a large, as you mentioned earlier, Gas Metro, a, a Canadian gas company. But Mary doesn't run this place as a subsidiary. She runs it as if it were a major independent publicly listed corporation, even though it's just a quote unquote, just a subsidiary. After so, the acquisition, yeah. After the acquisition. So Mary, hi, you know, this is kind of going beyond outside. You were making some of this stuff up. You were breaking new ground. The little guy takes over the big guy, you know. What was your yeah. thought? How how did you make that metamorphosis? Well, I mean, you know, there you go, Nor, the little engine that could. That was my favorite. <laughs> I think I can. I think I can. Um, and we and we could. Yeah. So no, I I appreciate that, and I actually do feel like, um, you know, vision for better or for worse is you know what also really drives me, right? I I feel, and again, I I've often thought, ah, it probably just comes from that same, you know, like a lot of things come from our childhood, right? And I had a vision of how things could be better. Um, and I feel like I'm constantly, in fact, my daughter will say that to me, mom, stop. <laughs> I should, you know, like it doesn't have to be that next, you know, I tend to just look at things in the context of, wow, like if we did this, this, and this, and this, that could be even so much better, right? So it is, it is, a, it is an orientation I've had my whole life and an intensity and a drive around, you know, how do we take whatever is and make it a bit better, right? And that, and back to culture eats strategy, Nord, as you know, I mean, from my perspective, you know, I really felt like that pulling off that acquisition of CVPS and merging it into Green Mountain Power, I mean, just there was no way you could be Vermont obsessed, customer obsessed, wanting to see Vermont move towards a cleaner, greener, cost-effective future and not want to do that transaction because it was just, it used to just drive me crazy um, at the costs that Vermonters were having to absorb uh, to have two of us when we could be one much stronger company on behalf of the Vermonters we served. And as you know, it was, you know, we promised what, 144 million, I think last tally, we were headed to whatever, 175 million of savings, which for a little state is a lot of money. And that, you know, and that's another like part of my, 
my visions do tend to also be tied to back to the sort of, I think those humble financial beginnings, you know, I, I can't stand waste. I mean, I just can't, like, it's just deep in my DNA. So, um, you know, I feel like, yes, that was really important. And as it relates to, you know, how we operated, you know, it, from my perspective, and I think it proved out, um, you know, we would be, we would be better for Vermont and we would be, and we would produce better results for all of our stakeholders, our customers, our regulators, our, you know, and our, and our ultimately our, our owner, if we, you know, acted as independent as possible and that's how we acted. Right. So we, you're right. We never, you know, um, yeah, we, we really focused on what is the right thing to do for the Vermonters we serve. And we were obsessive about serving the Vermonters we served um, and delivering on what they were telling us they wanted from us. So yeah, that was, that was the vision thing, like making it as an amazing company as we possibly could, being a leader in the, con and, and Vermonters wanted us to do that. They wanted us to lead on climate change and on innovation. So delivering, and that's what drove all of the other amazing things we were able to do was really that core of customer obsession, being of service, providing value. Um, and that's what made doing some of those big, hairy, audacious goals, as we would call them. <laughs> um, what I'm hearing is that this, um, this sort of just deep well of, of instinct to serve and make things better helped you transcend a bunch of obstacles that might have caught somebody else because uh, you kind of didn't care. You were just going for that service thing and that that is where the, the visions came from. And yep. by the way, we, we just have a few minutes, but there's a lot of people on this call who aren't in the energy industry. And I think they might not even know about this distributed energy revolution. So mm -hmm. can you just give a, a one minute on this, uh, Tesla Powerwall and such that's, you know, made Green Mountain Power famous? Yeah, I, I, I mean, at the end of the day, I think the simple way to think about it from my perspective, and it was something I was intrigued with really from the time I started at Green Mountain was just, you know, the, the way we serve, the way we bring energy around the country and around the world is based on really a system that's well over 120 years old, a way of thinking, a technology. Um, that really, from a climate change perspective, is challenging. Um, and, and not, let's put aside the green, because you can do, you can build big wind farms, you can build big solar, you can do these, these greener energy projects. But the, really, the thing that, you, that only distributed energy can do at this point is really make communities and homes and businesses more resilient. And so it really struck us very early on that being part of this, what I've always seen as a customer-led revolution to distributed energy, being a part of it and embracing it, unlike what a lot of other utility players were doing then and are still doing now, right, which is resisting it, that being a part of this innovation, we could actually create an energy system, be part of creating an energy system in the world, but very much in Vermont, that is a lot more sustainable, reliable, and resilient on behalf of the customers we serve. So, you know, simply- Tell them yeah. what, what is distributed energy. Okay, distributed energy are devices that can be in your home, so that, or they can be widely distributed. They can be at the community level or the home level. Um, they can connect to the grid, but really the, the most significant ones that we talk about now are solar and solar and storage. And I think the superpower really comes from when you pair solar and storage, if you can, if not just even having a storage device is very powerful. So you can have, you know, you become basically a generator of some of your own needs in your home and you have a system that can keep your home operating or your business operating when climatic events happen and the traditional system comes down. So basically your roof becomes a mini power plant. You've got Correct. a particular battery in your basement. It gathers the energy and then you give some of the energy back to your neighbors when you have more or when it's a cheaper time to give it. It's kind no. of amazing. It's a mind. Yeah, blow. it is. I mean, Many one people of the things... haven't heard about it and Green yeah. Mountain Power is way out front on this. So yeah, uh, we were, no. we really pioneered, we really pioneered what was is considered like grid services. So having all these different devices and creating an energy sharing economy. 
where we were pulling from those devices on days where it really helped lower costs and carbon for all the customers we served. It's very cool. It's Innovation is a tremendous gift of the human species. We are very, very good at thinking our way out of boxes and inventing new ways to do things. And Green Mountain Power has been a great example of that. So we're at the end, Mary. I just want to thank you so much. That was a very inspiring and beautiful conversation. I love it. I'm so glad you're putting love into the CEO skill set very boldly. Thank you so much. Thank you Mary, uh, for, for getting in here with us and for introducing yeah. us. So good to see you, Nord. So good to see you, Eric, Suzanne. Oh. My great pleasure, Mary. Uh, love you guys. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you got some value from this Leader Site podcast and would like to say thanks, please subscribe to it, like it on your favorite podcast app, and consider sharing it with a friend who could use it. And if you'd like to connect, head over to thompsonleadership.com, where we are all about helping grow great leaders, great teams, often helping them navigate the high stakes people challenges that are always part of the ride to victory.